Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, Cheryl Sandberg stands down from her role at Meta, but what is her legacy? Will the EU rules on universal charges make a substantial difference to the environment? And we'll take a closer look at the screen time dashboard TikTok is introducing for younger users. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Facebook started 18 years ago and it was text on websites. Then we got phones, so it became mobile. Then our phones got cameras, so you could then make it visual like Instagram. And then those cameras sped up and you could take video. You know, you've always had in your job a big camera crew, but now the average person can take a video, shoot a video, watch a video. And the metaverse we think is gonna be the next phase of that internet. You know, I came to work for Mark Zuckerberg 14 years ago this month, he was 23 years old. And even at 23, his vision was not days or weeks, it was decades. And today, our vision is even longer term. But I think the possibilities are so exciting. So if today you can see an ad on the internet and see a dress, tomorrow you can try that dress on. If today you and I could be sitting here in person or doing it on Zoom, tomorrow we'll feel like we're in the same place. We do have a lot of experience investing in consumer products, getting consumers to use them, and then monetizing it. That's what we've done. That's what we did on the desktop. That's what we did on mobile. That's what we've done with stories. And now we're increasingly gonna do that with reels. So we know it'll be hard work. We don't know exactly how the economic platform will develop, but we believe it will based on investment we'll make and people around the world will make with us. Yeah. The metaverse could well be the next iteration of the internet and the big focus for Meta. But Cheryl Sandberg, who you just heard speaking there to Forbes earlier this year, won't be around for it. Uh, Ms. Sandberg announced last week that she's to step away from her role as company COO, but will remain on the board. Emmett Ryan of the Business Post joins me now to look at the influence she has had on the company and what is next for the social media giant. Emmett, it's interesting that uh, Cheryl Sandberg is stepping down. And before we look at her legacy and the role that she played, I don't know if I'm just a bit cynical in my old age, but the putting out of the statement as the verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial was quite interesting. I was wondering, are they trying to bury this and hope not get picked up? What was your thoughts on that front? It really screamed that there was classic burial operation to me uh, because it was at the absolute like as we were hitting sort of you know the peak of the reaction to the herd depth trial that this came out so their hope was clear that it was as far as i can see anyway their hope was that it would get lost in the you know absolute online uh row fest that was a reaction to that trial unfortunately it was so obvious to a lot of people that it backfired and you had some people saying well this is an obvious burial job online and started talking about it so I think that was their goal, but it was so obvious that it didn't work. Mm. We spoke a few months ago about some of the controversies at Meta, um, particularly in the wake of the whistleblower uh, Francis Haugen. And I can't remember if you said it or if I said it, but one of us said, you know, there's not going to be real change at Meta until the top managerial level changes. And so Sheryl Sandberg leaving It is a significant move because she's such a visible part of the company. 
is and was though just what i would say because like you know i think it was actually both of us said it if i recall correctly about what you were saying with the haugen time uh because if you think about it like a big big part of her role was to be the person that took you know the grief for zuckerberg as in she was the front face she was the person people always saw and heard that had clearly evolved into being nick clegg's job over the last uh you know two years and especially in the pandemic time, it was Nick Clegg who was the face uh, and voice of Facebook far more than Zuckerberg. It was not far more than Zuckerberg, but far more than Sandberg. And I feel that sort of, you know, that was a, clearly a key reason she was in Meta slash Facebook in order to be sort of, you know, that, that buffer between Zuckerberg and the wild criticism and, the, you know, the, the need for someone to talk. And I feel that like Clegg had clearly taken over that duty, uh, you know, altogether. All Mm. So do you think that this was almost a long goodbye, that this was a strategy to bring Clegg in? Or do you think that it's just convenient that they had brought him in a wee while ago? So there's not going to be this big gaping wound in the top tiers of Meta? I think it's more the latter, to be honest. I think when they brought Clegg in, they weren't really thinking of him as being the replacement for Sandberg in that role, but more of a secondary person in that role. And it's obviously a more European face as well. And I think they realized over time that he was just frankly more suited to it mm. than she was. Uh, he came across, like, don't get me wrong, he still comes across terrible at times, like he's representing Meta, but uh, he came across a bit more human than Sandberg did. Sandberg was always a little bit sort of, you know, that just a bit more relatable than Mark Zuckerberg, which isn't exactly a lot more relatable, whereas Clegg sounded a a lot more like he was used to this, which obviously, having been a parliamentarian for a long part of his life, he kind of is. Mm. So he had that more sort of, you know, it wasn't a confident voice, but more like he was talking to people voice than Sandberg did, uh, rather than talking at them, even though he was very much talking at them, like he had a better way of managing it. And as a result, I think they figured he was just the better person to use than her. But that's so funny, though, because when you look back at the the incredible legacy that Cheryl Sandberg leaves behind her as she steps down as uh, COO. She's still going to be on the board, by the way, so she's not gone entirely. But the whole lean in movement and the work that she did giving women and young girls a voice and the loss of her husband, there was a huge amount of humanity. She do think she was quite warm when when she did her, her tour of, you know, talking about the book and so on. I think we actually saw a bit more than we have done from pretty much anyone else that's come out from Meta over the years. Yes, but with a but, as always with me with a but. <laughs> in that spell around the, the book period, there was definitely that. But sort of, you know, it was sort of like this window where, you know, oddly a good comparison is like the way Callum Robinson was good for a few internationals for Ireland, uh, but has gone Robinson now. She had this window of being this sort of relatable human person, but then went back to being this standard US exec type not too long afterwards. And even when, when she was doing the tour stuff, she was standoffish in some respects in that she'd have briefings with journalists that were entirely off the record. I know you were at least, uh, at least one of me. And anything that was on the record was entirely sort of safe, scripted, public consumption stuff. Like, you know, it was all very, very much sort of with, you know, someone they had chosen to sit with her on stage to ask questions, which you would assume were pre-approved. And she never let herself get too much into the firing line outside of that one window. And of course, no one was going to go at her too hard over what was supposed to be sort of a strictly positive thing. But also there's the backlash to the lean-in movement from a lot of women in that sort of, you know, it was sort of, you know, read as, well, you've got to act like men in some respects type thing, which was sort of, you know, rightly or wrongly just on that in terms of how we reacted to, but clearly they thought it was a bit too much on the, you know, hyper-capitalist side in the way they looked at it. So there's definitely been a backlash to the lean-in movement as well from, from, from people, you know, from a lot of women. And so I think, you know, the legacy is a bit mixed in that respect. But if we look at what 
she has done for Meta slash Facebook, and I, I'm still not fully used to calling it Meta. I still always go back to Facebook, well, and I do apologise. It's, like, it's like, like no one calls Google Alphabet. That's true. Know? That is true. Okay, so let's let's just uh, use the two of them interchangeably, which I know Facebook won't like, Meta won't like, but I apologise. Um, in terms of behind the scenes, you know, do you think that Sheryl Sandberg was as influential as it appears um, in terms of the decisions the company has made, the money the company has made, and the controversies the company has been involved in? In a word, yes. Uh, I think a lot of the sort of the, the Haugen leaks show that as well in many respects. Uh, because, like, you know, uh, Sandberg was clearly, you know, devotedly loyal in terms of sort of, you know, Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, very much took the sort of the aggressive stance that the leadership was noted for, but we heard more about over the years. And I think that might have also stood against her in that she wasn't seen as being sort of this more, you know, relatable face anymore because of it, because it clearly was that she was sort of heavily behind a lot of the things people didn't like about Meta and Facebook, which, you know, there's a good chance that Clegg will eventually be considered to be that as well. But the point is he currently isn't, you know, tarnished by that. And so he's more useful in the short term. Whereas like Sandberg was sort of seen as being, well, it, basically her and Zuckerberg are reading off the same playbook, uh, same sheet and calling the same plays. So they didn't, people don't really feel her as being sort of that different in terms of what her, her methods and motivations were. Now, a lot of that as well is obviously her influencing Zuckerberg, which shows the influence she had in the company. But also, again, that comes back on her when it comes to the criticism of the company is like, well, you're meant to be this force to help make, make the business better. And the definition of better for her was straight up, you know, share, share price going up and uh, revenues going up. Whereas, you know, for a lot of people, that isn't enough. Yeah, the the post that um, Cheryl Sandberg posted, obviously enough on Facebook, and then Mark Zuckerberg posted one as well. It was very, you know, touchy feely that they're good friends and that you know he was in his early twenties when they first worked together. She was, I think, forty or thereabouts, and so she was kind of a mentor to him from a business point of view. But then, of course, she has learned so much from working with him. What do you like? Do you believe that the motivation is just to start a new chapter, or do you think that there is a bit of uncomfortableness within the main house of Meta? You've got to assume there is a bit of uncomfortableness because the nature of these companies is, unless you know, it's very rare that people in these top roles and companies this large don't eventually get a bit of resentment over time because they either become the absolute besties or you know, creeps start to happen, like cracks start to appear. Because, you know, you can only tolerate so much. And at the end of the day, Zuckerberg effectively has the the final say in what happens in Meta. And that's going to lead to some arguments, some fighting. And over time, that wears on you uh, with any business, with any life. Like, you know, I think most of our listeners can understand that. And so that's why people, you know, occasionally change jobs. Like with, with Sandberg, like she's made an awful lot of money doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, her profile has gone through the roof doing this. There's no question of that. And she has probably gotten as much out of it as she's going to get in terms of, outside of you know, excluding just pure compensation, because there's not much more she's going to get out of being in this role at Facebook. So she gets to stay on the board, which, you know, means she still has a, a bit of an impact, but she can now look at other opportunities for her to, you know, remain sort of, you know, relevant in sort of the public discourse going forward. Yeah, and I don't know if I'm just missing a beat here but I do wonder where she would go to next like I wonder will she focus on the more uh, sort of philanthropy side of things will she look to give back will she look to start her own thing because I can't really imagine her going into another social media company or another obvious tech company particularly because of the the reputation that Meta has at the moment Um, but also what would she get from going back in to report to somebody else 
Yeah, I think you're right there. Like she might start her own thing, but what I'm seeing more is what you were saying there. The philanthropy side is a natural route for her to go down, but also with that, it can give her more ties in terms of like sort of government policy type work, which I certainly think she'd like to get involved in, like more influence at a government level in the US and broader world. So there are areas where she can naturally like, you know, move into. Obviously, she'd be controversial deployment wherever she goes. But those are the type of roles where, you know, her as a, you know, the highest power consultant going uh, would be able to demand wild fees and be extremely front facing. So it's a very natural role for her. Um, she's leaving at a time where Meta has been more associated with controversy than not in terms of headlines and so on. Well, that's most of Meta's history, but yes. Well, I just, like there was a time when we were just so happy to share photographs and get likes and all the rest. And then I think ever since Cambridge Analytica, it's just been blip, blip, blip. Well, that's six years. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But in terms of her legacy, so as she leaves Meta now, um, you know, the tablecloth has a few stains on it. Do you think that she's walking away with a legacy she can be proud of? And do you think that she'll still be a key player in the story of Meta in 10 or 15 years' time? Oh, they're both great questions. Uh, with I think no matter what, she'll be proud of the legacy. I think it's going to be a mixed one when you're a senior executive in a high-powered company. Like, I obviously would have some issues, but they're the same issues that most people have because I'm a, well, my first thought is, well, this has become a force for harm in many respects. Like, you know, it's like kind of instrumental in that, whereas it's been a lot better than it was, and she was kind of instrumental in it soon enough. Uh, but at the same time, I think a lot of people will look at sort of, you know, the impact, you know, Meta, Facebook had on society, and you can't ignore the sheer scale of her role in that. Likewise, in the 10, 15 years' time, a lot of it down to what the metaverse is like because she's leaving right as Facebook is going all in on that. And so like that chapter sort of, you know, where she's at now, it's sort of leaving at sort of the period where Woz would have, you know, left if you're going with that a- a- aspect from from Apple as a case of, well, she's leaving now before, you know, Facebook is on to go with what's next. But like, it's hard to say as a mm-hmm. short for She will still be noted as being a key figure in 10, 15 years time. But, uh, you know, got the monkey's paw out here, good or bad for her or Meta. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just briefly, I, I saw quotes from Nick Clegg this week saying that Zuckerberg, like it makes sense for Zuckerberg to stay where he is. And, you know, I think there was something about, you know, it's the natural fit or it makes sense, whatever the quote was. Um, do you think that Zuckerberg will remain in place? We had spoken and speculated before about maybe the metaverse company shimmying to the left and then the social media platforms as they are now shimmy to the right and there is a bit of a segregation. What do you think on that front? It's become tougher, oddly, since now Sandberg's going because mm. the natural replacement at CEO for Zuckerberg was Sandberg. Whatever else they say about her, she would have been the natural person to tap on the shoulder. Clegg, for all I've said about him being a better face for Facebook right now, slash meta, he clearly isn't the person suited to a CEO type role. He's much better at being the type of gig he has best way of putting it so you'd be looking at someone who we aren't really talking about who we haven't talked about yet with facebook slash meta when they eventually do make that switch to the first non-founder ceo but it is a big issue for the company going forward because like zuckerberg is so heavily tied to what the business is it's like you know when bill gates stepped down as ceo of microsoft like the first person even if they are seen as part of the same you know uh, uh, you know corporate bloodline is going to be a very, very tough gig. And not every company has managed it. Some have really struggled. Like, you know, Microsoft certainly had their struggles when they first moved on from Bill Gates. Mm. Uh, like, they've come back much stronger. But, you know, there were those years of wobble. And with Zuckerberg, I'm sure he doesn't want to move from his current role until he's got this metaverse project where he wants it to be. So I think we're going to be quite a while yet. 
And do you think we are going to have more hiccups and controversies and leaks and whistleblowers and all the rest? Like, we're not done yet, sure we're not. We still don't fully know the impact of social media as a whole, not just the meta companies, but meta in particular. Well, I certainly hope so. It gives me more reasons to go on podcasts and radio shows. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but seriously, yeah, no, I'd be stunned if there aren't more. Just a company to scale, there's always going to be issues. Yeah, and it's an interesting one to watch because not only this year are we going to see Cheryl Sandberg stand down, but we're also, of course, going to get a bit of legislation, hopefully, uh, for social media platforms. And it'll be interesting to see how they interpret it, but also how it's policed on a day-to-day basis. Do you think the meta companies are wary? Do they have their backs up about this? Or would they, as Zuckerberg has said numerous times at different hearings, embrace regulation? Uh, that's a very good good one. I'm looking at it like, I'm sure they'll embrace regulation and they'll find every way they can to make it work for them. Okay. Interesting. As they always do, right? As they always do. Like, you know, it's the same, it's the same dance we've been going around doing this job for an awful long time. God, you're so cynical, Emmett. I was trying to be optimistic there, saying, you know, good things might come. Well, it, it might, but like I like to kind of be pleasantly surprised. I find the whole thing about being a bit of a, a cynical pessimist on this is I'm either right and I'm happy about that, or I'm pleasantly surprised. So either way, I come out feeling better. Okay, well, that is a nice way to do, to, to leave things, I guess. Uh, Emmett Ryan of the Business Post, as always, it's a pleasure to have you here on Tech Talk. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jess. Coming up next here on News Talk, will the introduction of universal chargers within the EU really make a meaningful contribution to protecting the planet? Tech Talk. On News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you want to get in touch, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Earlier this week, TikTok announced new features to help younger users with their screen time. Over the coming weeks, it's going to launch screen time breaks, which will prompt users to take a break after a certain amount of uninterrupted screen time. This can all be custom set. Uh, The dashboard will give sort of a bird's eye view of how much an individual user is spending on TikTok. The company's also going to launch a digital well-being guide to encourage users to reflect on how much time they're spending online. News Talk reporter Michael Dooley spoke to Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids about these new features and asked if they go far enough. I think TikTok have introduced more safeguards over the last, I would say, 18 months or so. So I do think they are taking the the, the need to protect children who are using their services more seriously. Um, These moves are largely directed at users uh, aged 13 to 17. I suppose one of the issues I would point out is that a lot there are a lot younger users than that as well like from our survey last year 47 percent of the 8 to 12 year olds that we surveyed which was almost 4,000 children were using tiktok so they have a, they have a huge underage uh, audience on their platforms which is which is one issue um another issue is is you know what they're being exposed to the content that's being targeted at them you know children aren't always truthful about their age as we know So, you know, there's potentially children who are putting in ages over the age of 18 and therefore bypassing all safeguards altogether. 
Um, so I think there's still a lot more that TikTok needs to do. I think there is technology that could be deployed to ascertain whether or not, uh, it, you know, as a person or a user is a child um, and that automatic safeguards should be applied to that account um, uh, as, a, as a means of protecting, protecting them in those environments. I think at this stage, it's still a gesture. I, I mean, you know, absolutely. TikTok talks about the importance of protecting minors on their on their platform. But we do still have this issue of, of those under the age of 13 using those services. And there's definitely more they could be doing there. Um, what we need to see more fundamentally, and this is across the board, it's not just TikTok, is safety by design, that these environments are being designed with safety at their core, with the acknowledgement that children will make up a large number of their users and therefore they need to ensure that those children to the best ability that they can and with the best investments that they can that those children will have a safe and positive experience in their in those online environments and i think this is even more important as we move towards things like the metaverse uh, where children will most certainly want to be you know we need to ensure that any environment where children are that there are safeguards built into the very design of it well, in terms of digital design, it would be that safety by design, that any new environments by being built have, have that at its core and any existing environments. So a lot of obviously these environments are, are existing now, the TikToks, the Instagrams, you know, the Snapchats, these are where children already are, you know, that those there are, you know, a, a much better acknowledgement of children as users and better protections that are automatically put in place once they, the algorithm picks up that it's a child and it's a, it's a, a, an and that they have an experience on those platforms that is age appropriate you know so that it's going to be different whether it's a 10 year old versus a 17 year old yeah that's alex cuny of cyber safe kids I'm always intrigued in Alex's take on these things. They go out every year at CyberSafe Kids and they talk to young people about what matters to them, about the help that they would like in terms of navigating the online world and the real life issues, I suppose. Uh, so her take is always incredibly interesting. Our reporter also spoke to TD Gary Gannon, uh, who said that TikTok is open to engagement with the public, but there is more that they can do to protect its users. Just in my experience as a public rep, I've actually found working with TikTok to be more helpful than working with some of the other social media providers. We've had some issues in the constituency recently where some violence was being uploaded onto TikTok. I actually found engagement with TikTok. They were open to terms of engaging with local residents, even in terms of highlighting how they can combat that through looking at what hashtags are being used and then sort of seeking to remedy that by removing the videos very quickly. That said, though, social media providers, TikTok included, have a massive responsibility to their users in terms of the type of content they're allowing onto their platforms, um, managing um, who the anonymous accounts that use their platforms. And also, I think for TikTok in particular, recognising that a lot of members are, are younger members and they're more vulnerable. So some of the measures that were announced today with TikTok, I mean, they're welcome only in the sense that they give users an indication of how much screen time they're using on the platform. But I think we all know that for a young person, that's not necessarily going to be a deterrent. <laughs> what will actually may be helpful is some of the prompts that come onto the screens that TikTok have now introduced. But again, these well-being prompts, they need to be, um, I think they need to be user-friendly. They can't just become something that's routine, mundane, that actually doesn't catch the young person's eye or just become something that's basically they see in the corner of the screen and don't have to engage with. 
I think what TikTok could do is not only allowing the user themselves to set their own screen time, because, I mean, we can all set our screen time, but then if we set for three hours, we read three hours, we'll just go in and extend it to do the four or five. Maybe TikTok can actually extend it, put their own um, set times on it, depending on the age appropriateness for the user who would be using it. I think that might be a little bit more effective. Look, I don't want to be one of those kind of generation of old people that simply come along and say new technology is inherently bad, because I don't think it actually is. I think we've seen during the um, pandemic when young people were removed from schools, actually having access to technology was very welcome for them. I think where TikTok be a TikTok, be a Instagram, I think what they can be told, they can be useful tools for gathering information when done appropriately. But TikTok have to take that responsibility seriously in terms of um, demonstrating the algorithms that will show people. Like there's a lot of people on TikTok demonstrating how to do complex maths algorithms, for example. Look, that can be very helpful. But then there's other, a lot more detrimental information too. So it's ensuring that a young person has access to the more positive aspects of people uploading information sharing in relation to education, be that maths, be it science, just ensuring that there's a balance there. I'd love to know what you think. You can email techtalk at newstalk.com. That was TD Gary Gannon speaking to News Talk's Michael Dooley. Now, on Tuesday, the EU confirmed that by autumn 2024, all technological devices will need to use a common charger. That is the USB-C. The only real outlier on this front at the moment is Apple, but they won't have an option anymore when it comes to devices within the EU. Dr. Cara Augustenberg is a member of the Climate Change Advisory Council and she joins me now. Cara, I'm delighted firstly to have you on Tech Talk because I have been wondering all week, is this a significant move from an environmental point of view? Yeah, just we wouldn't think about these little tiny cables as having a huge environmental impact, but it turns out they're contributing to over a thousand tons of waste a year. So that's a huge amount of waste for a tiny little cable. So this this new legislation that they're putting forward will will help alleviate that. But also, if we think about the manufacture the yeah the manufacturing process of electronics, they involve uh, extractive industries. So there's a lot of mining required to get some of these metals that we use in electronics and uh, Uh, That extraction usually happens in developing countries, which have maybe poor labor practices. Some of these countries are using child labor, uh, and and it's not something that we can control if we're getting these these minerals or elements from from these developing countries. So the more we can reduce electronic waste, the more we help the environment, the more we, we can kind of deal with these issues around labor practices, and the more we move to this idea of a circular economy where any waste that we produce also becomes a resource or a fuel for some other uh, industry. So uh, thanks to the EU, this is something that, that we've been dealing with for a long time. If, if your listeners are, are old enough to remember back when we had the brick phones and the Nokia phones, uh, there were tons of different chargers out there. I'm not sure if you remember that, but I remember buying phones and, and picking them based on the chargers because some of the chargers were terrible and they would fall out all the time. And the EU pushed phone companies to move toward a a more standardized system. So more and more companies started voluntarily using these USB-C charging systems, and that's allowed us more accessibility for chargers, and and it's making it easier for consumers. But uh, there's been some holdouts, and I think you might agree that Apple has really held out and not adopted this universal charger system. Yeah, and it's funny because Apple has done 
or that they've said that they've done a whole host of initiatives for the environment. They have done, uh, they were the first one to ditch the brick part of the plug. So uh, the bit that goes into the wall, they got rid of that. They cut down on the waste and the boxes that iPhones in particular come in now are a fraction of the size that they were. So it's a funny one in that that they seem environmentally aware and very proactive on some fronts, but we're dragging their heels in this instance. But having them on board will make a big difference because of that figure that you mentioned, the amount of waste that is generated by having all of these charges. Every home in the country, I guarantee it, has a junk drawer full of these cables. So the removal of these, the removal of the headphones, it does all add up, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. And and I think the, the other interesting thing is uh, that, that chargers now come as standard. When you buy a phone, you're also given a charger. And part of this legislation, the EU is saying, well, look, if all the chargers are the same, then uh, phone companies won't have to give you the charger with the phone because you should already have plenty of those chargers around from your other phones or your older devices. Or, uh, so that means that they won't be they won't be selling the charger with the phone, which you would think would make it easier for the manufacturers. And also it gives consumers a choice that they're not being foisted an, another charger that maybe they don't need. So they're not be, being given stuff unnecessarily and, and they can buy their chargers separately. I, I, as I mentioned before, I'm delighted that you're on the show because I am someone who I use my keep cup. I have my bottle. I'm trying to do bits and pieces to look after um, my own footprint. But I always feel conflicted because I love technology and I love getting my hands on the latest technology and I love talking about it. But there is that conflict when you look at the the, the carbon footprint and the damage that big tech in general does uh, to the environment. Is there a way to embrace and love technology and also be a pal of the environment and of the of the planet Earth? Yeah, I think as we move toward uh, a more circular economy that that, you know, the, the, the environmental impact will lessen on these things. And, and the perfect example is electric vehicles. So I drive an electric vehicle and anytime, you know, I, I say this online, I'm, I'm told, oh, but these are horrible for the environment because of the battery. And yes, these batteries do use a lot of uh, minerals from extractive industries, and uh, that's going to become a problem. But actually, at the moment, there is, there's way more of these kind of minerals or elements tied up in our laptops and our phones than there is in all the electric vehicle batteries in the entire world because we simply don't have that many electric vehicles uh, out in the world yet. So electric vehicles are driving a lot of research going into synthetic manufacturing of these kind of chemicals so that we don't have to mine them, we don't have to create the environmental impact. Uh, so I think in the next five or 10 years, we will start to see synthetic alternatives that are being driven by a huge demand for more electric vehicles. And that will then filter into our electronics. So we will see synthetic uh, chemicals in our electronics instead of these mined and extracted um, elements that, that we're using at the moment. And then I think we'll see more reuse. So for electric vehicle batteries at the moment, they're being uh, repurposed at the end of their lifetime into home wall batteries uh, and used for storing solar energy from, from solar panels. So uh, we'll see more of that, I hope, where where maybe if we're throwing out a phone that it's being reused into something else, it can be used as a, a different type of device or recycled. Uh, and this whole drive toward a circular economy is really driving innovation in this space. So hopefully over time, we'll see more of that and, and we'll see consumers choosing products uh, where that is more of a focus. What happens to them at the end of their, their life uh, is something that hopefully consumers will will know more about and will get to choose products on that basis. 
Yeah, recently on the show we had uh, the guys from Swappy on and they sell refurbished iPhones. And it was interesting talking to uh, the team there because they put a lot of emphasis on the calibre of the repair and the refurbish to ensure that when you buy a product from them, it is of a really, really high standard. And I was kind of wondering, you know, not only are you getting a a branded product, uh, it's been refurbished to the highest standard, but you're also saving money. So this notion of, you know, going green, it always costs you more. That's not actually the case. Sure, it's not. No, but I think particularly in the electronics sector, it it should save companies money, which should then trickle down into consumers. So it's definitely uh, you can see why when it comes to food, for example, if you're going organic, uh, maybe that requires more labor on the part of the farmer because they can't use chemicals to deal with pests. And so that increases the prices because there's more work involved to produce organic food. But when it comes to electronics, it it certainly should be more cost effective uh, to produce more environmentally friendly products. and, And that saving should be passed down to us. And when it comes to the big tech firms, like we, we've mentioned about the chargers, we've mentioned about headphones not being in the boxes. Is there still more that could be done? And are you satisfied that they are aware of that, you know, that they could be doing more and that there's the will and the drive to do more before it's too late? Yeah, I I would guess that chargers are not the biggest problem when it comes to the environmental impacts. That there's certainly um, a lot more uh, harmful chemicals, you know, or or elements trapped in our own phones rather than the actual cable. So I think we do need to look at the phones and how the components for those phones are produced and what happens at the end of the lifetime of the phone in particular. And I think we are under pressure to replace our phones every couple years. We, we notice, I mean, I certainly notice that the battery in my phone now uh, has really deteriorated in the last three years. And, uh, and so that we're going to have to design phones where, where we're not being pressured to replace them as quickly or they're not deteriorating as quickly. Um, and unfortunately, there's a vested interest by manufacturers to make them essentially disposable and make them so that we do feel the need to replace them every couple of years. And I think you, you see that a lot, particularly with the iPhones, uh, where they become obsolete very quickly. Um, and, and that whole system has to go. And that's going to be the hard thing because it's not in the manufacturer's interest to get you to hold on to a phone longer. They very much want you to replace your phone. So uh, how we move to that kind of uh, philosophy of, of not planning in obsolescence in electronics in general uh, is going to be tricky. And that's something that the EU is also working on. It's They've been working on this for, for uh, items like washing machines and dishwashers, where maybe our parents' generation used to be able to hold on to a washing machine for 20 years. Uh, now we find our washing machines are deteriorating within maybe five years. And that has been planned in by manufacturers. Uh, so we have to find a way to stop them from doing that so that we can hold on to our electronic items for longer. Yeah, but it's funny, the talk of, you know, the right to repair, this idea that, you know, you would have the right to get access to the parts and the instructions on how to repair whatever device it is that you've bought and is broken down. Again, some of the tech companies are dragging their heels on that. They're saying that it's such skilled labour that God forbid anyone would know how you replace the screen on a smartphone. It must be frustrating when you can see the potential benefit to the planet that we're all living on and you've got corporations just dragging their heels because it would inconvenience them. Yeah, and I and I think that's why we're we're very lucky that we have the EU as this kind of force that that can can force technologies uh, to change, and and that they that they're able to say, look, you know, we've tried to work with them voluntarily, and it's not working, so we're going to pass legislation, and that can drive 
uh, change. And, you know, if we had that uh, when we were developing our, elect our electricity system here in Ireland, we probably wouldn't have the three pin plugs that we have now in all of devices. And, you know, we would have the same as what we have in what everyone has in Europe. And that might make things easier when we're buying electronics. But um, it is really frustrating. And I think there is a real opportunity for more local employment and, and uh, opportunities for repair shops like Swappy um, if manufacturers made it easier to repair things. But of course, it's not in their interests. And this is why we need legislation to, to make it happen. I do think that that work is being done, as I mentioned uh, before we came on air, you know, very often when a big tech company is launching a new product, they will allocate a few minutes to talk about what they're doing from an environmental point of view, which is great. You know, with, I think it was the iPhone 13 launch. Uh, it was a pre-recorded segment and they had somebody from their environmental policy team showcasing all their solar panels that are in Apple HQ and they were talking about the initiatives that they're doing at a ground level on their campus uh, right through to cutting down on product waste. So I think there's an element of change happening but I suppose to end on a cynical note because it wouldn't be like me uh, to be cynical but how much of this is corporations doing it because they know that particular generations or particular demographics care about the environment versus actual will for change? Yeah, I, I would guess all of it or most of it. <laughs> but at the same time, people who work in these kind of um, jobs in, in corporations where they're a sustainability officer, and they generally are someone who cares absolutely passionately about trying to do the right thing. So I think within these companies, there are people who really care about this stuff and are trying to do their best. Uh, and we have to keep pushing them to do more. So it's great that every company now usually has a sustainability officer and they have some kind of policies about how they're trying to do better uh, in their offices or to reduce packaging or whatever it may be. But we as consumers need to push them harder and say, well, that's not enough. We know we have to, to radically transform society to deal with the climate and biodiversity crisis we're experiencing. And so simply bringing in your keep cups or, you know, or getting your, your employees to cycle to work, it, it's all great, but it's not enough. You have to look at your entire life cycle of how your products are produced, the ingredients that you purchase, whatever it is, all the way through to the end of their, their product lifetime. And you have to be able to tell me how you are moving toward a more sustainable way. It, we're not going to be perfectly environmentally, you know, uh, angelic here. Everything creates an impact. But what I want to see as a consumer is that you are on a journey. You're well aware of the full journey and you're showing me how you plan to keep doing better and better and better to move to a more sustainable company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, look, I'm by no means an expert, but I do think it comes down to accountability. So accountability, like personal accountability within your friend group, your family group, within your workplace, and then within the brands that you interact with. And hopefully by holding people to an account, um, things will change and for the better. Um, Cara, thank you so much for joining us here on Newstalk. If you want to hear more from Cara, you can download uh, Down to Earth, which is available on the Newstalk app powered by GoLed. It's a fascinating series. There's actually an episode that looks at technology as well, so you can scroll on through and you will find it there. Uh, Cara, pleasure as always. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jess. Tech Talk on Newstalk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware.
Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. And if you do have any gaming questions, uh, get them in on that email address right now because John Riley is going to be here next week answering your questions. If you're looking for a particular game review, if you're not sure about what console is right, uh, do drop us a line, techtalk at newstalk.com. And as I said, John will be here next week. Now, as you know, here on Tech Talk, I love featuring Irish entrepreneurs whenever we possibly can. And Sophie Leahy is the co-founder of a device called the Wine Opener. Now, I was instantly intrigued because this is something that I struggle with. It's one of my many, many weaknesses as a human. Uh, but Sophie, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. Can you just start by explaining what exactly the Wine Opener is? Yes. So the Wine Opener, it's an electronic wine opener that helps people open a bottle of wine with the touch of a button. So we have two colours. It comes in gold and chrome. And it basically sits on top of your bottle of wine you press a button, it rises the cork out, um, and then you slant it, press the button again, and it spits the cork back out. And I guess the most important thing about the wine opener is why it was made. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason we invented the wine opener was for people who can't open a bottle of wine. So people like who struggle with arthritis, or we have a lot of people coming back that it's really helped um, MS, people that uh, struggle with MS. Um, so that is one of our main markets that people love the wine opener in. Uh, the second one is people just don't like to open a bottle of wine like myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm one of the people I, I sit in the camp of someone who can't open a bottle of wine. I couldn't tell you the last time I opened a bottle of wine and either the cork didn't break or the wine was corked or you just make a hames of it. I actually broke a, a bottle opener as well at one stage trying to open it. So I see the multiple, um, I suppose, case scenarios where people would get the benefit of this. Mm. Tell me a little bit about the design of it and firming up the design because I'm sure there's a few different ways you could go about the presentation of it. As you mentioned, and obviously we're on radio, so it's a little bit tricky for, for to paint the picture, but people can head to the website and see it. But you sit the bottle, um, you sit the, the, the wine opener on top of the bottle, push the button, as you said, and it does the magic. How did you decide upon it and sign off on the design that you've gone for? So honestly, it was through trial and error because originally how we thought of the topic was literally at our kitchen table and my mom asked me to open a bottle of wine and I was like mommy can you not open your own bottle of wine and she said my hands are too sore so this got me thinking Christmas that's brilliant I went to Amazon and we bought three different wine openers and one was too heavy one was too thick she couldn't grasp it and then the other one wasn't rechargeable and it just broke batteries kept wearing out so when we went to design our wine opener we knew really quickly everything we didn't want and then we fed that into our manufacturer and it took us a bit of trial and error Jess I'll give you the funniest story and we thought we had the final one created Mm -hmm. and my mom went down to my auntie's and my auntie's a bit visually impaired so I thought I was like go down to my auntie now and we definitely have a winner if the two of you can open this without any help and of course, I got a call. Our, what we thought was our last uh, prototype had two buttons, but sure, they couldn't figure out the two buttons. So that's why the wine opener <laughs> now has one. So it's so it's too easy to use. Like, no, if my mom and auntie can do it, anybody can. 
But that's great though because it is that real life feedback that as an entrepreneur you really can't buy. Like you have to get it into the hands of the people that you're trying to sell it to and find any quirks with it. So from mm-hmm. conception right through to where we are today, how long has it been and how long was the process of that trial and error before you got your finest, final one that you're delighted with now? So the, that conversation around the dinner table was two years ago. Um, and then it took us probably about six months for us to even do our own product, never mind all the testing we'd done on previous prototypes that we didn't like. And now we're just we're just a year old um, in next week. Oh, brilliant. That's that's great. And how have you found getting the message out there? Because I think when people see something like this, they can initially uh, initially think maybe it's a bit of a gimmicky gadget. But as you said there, for people who, whether it is through medical reasons or people like me who just can't physically open a bottle of wine, <laughs> there are real life scenarios where it's beneficial. I think the Irish, um, the Irish people have just been really warming to the story. And I think a lot of people... Um, story kind of aligns they have an issue and they're like oh we'll try it out and then it's our sales from reoccurring buyers are huge so it's obviously people that like the product they're telling their friends Mm -hmm. and then they're buying it so I guess it's where the mouth that's really helped us and then a lot of Irish bloggers have really like they've jumped on board with us and they love the product and they've been really kind to share it to audiences um and then it's word of mouth from that too Mm -hmm. so yeah I think word of mouth and then Instagram has really helped us and I guess there's no other there's no better advertisement or marketing than someone recommending you a product that they've used and that's really helped them yeah absolutely that is the dream from a manufacturing and supply chain uh, point of view obviously starting a business during a pandemic is not an easy thing to do have you been stung by any of that so a lot of people will say that to me but I guess I never knew the other side Mm -hmm. pre-pandemic so all I know is what the difficulties of people are having now. So I guess I can't even compare of what it used to be like. I'm used to the delays. I'm used to the cost increases. So I know it's mad to think like people that create businesses in the pandemic, you're like, how has that affected you? But that's actually the only environment I know. Mm. Well, you are going from strength to strength. Um, the website is the wine opener.ie if you want to go and have a look and it's also in a number of stockets around the country but you can find the full details up on the website Uh, Sophie best of luck with it and thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk Thank you Jess And that is all we have time for this week if you missed any of the show you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud 